from the FID studio in Pasadena, California. How's everyone doing? I'm Rabbi Joshua Levine Grader, and you're listening to Stories from the Street. It's a podcast out of our work here at Friends Indeed, the interfaith agency here in the city of Pasadena that provides supportive services for our homeless and at-risk neighbors so they can uh, rebuild their lives and try to do this with compassion, connection, and dignity in all the work that we do. I'm real proud to be the executive director of Friends Indeed. So today I want to focus on an article that I read in uh, the Pasadena Now just uh, last week. So in short, the article said that the Los Angeles County Board of Supervisors approved a $10 million funding source for cities and local councils of government who need help paying for supportive services at interim housing sites. Supervisors Hilda Solis and Catherine Barger, our uh, representative, co-authored the motion recommending the fund. The supervisors recognized that, quote, local jurisdictions have proven that they are active partners in finding a solution to homelessness. Solis highlighted a number of new projects, including tiny homes in Baldwin Park and Montebello, with 25 interim beds each. Redondo Beach opened a pallet shelter last December, while El Monte purchased two motels set to open soon to people experiencing homelessness. So why is this so significant? It's not talking about Pasadena, so why am I sharing it with you? That's precisely the reason Pasadena is not mentioned, because our city has rejected all manners of creative interim housing solutions that are happening in Baldwin Park, Montebello, Redondo Beach, and El Monte. Tiny homes, pallet shelters, motels. Does that sound familiar? I'm only one of the many people that have written about, spoken about, protested, and argued for out-of-the-box thinking in regards to temporary and transitional housing in our city of Pasadena. And what has the answer been each time? No, and no, and no. It wouldn't work here. There's no available space, not enough funding. Neighbors wouldn't permit it. So I have to ask, if it can work in these other cities, and these are just the ones mentioned in the article, if we have open space, if there's now significant funding to support these kinds of projects, and if the neighbors would be accepting, then what is our problem? One of the reasons I call this podcast Stories from the Street is because Friends Indeed is all about helping human beings in the moment and trying to get them uh, to a better place in their life and offering them compassion, connection, dignity, as you've heard me say. So I want to tell you one of those stories and to share with you that if we had had this pallet shelter, tiny home, motel opportunity for this woman, Karen, you'll see how much better it would have been before we were able to get her housed. So Karen was a women's room client who was referred to our street outreach team. She's 68 years old, had mostly been on the streets for several months, but had been homeless on and off for nearly 17 years. She would ride the buses all night to stay safe, but even that was a problem as she would 
fall and then get on and off the bus and was frequently badly bruised. But she didn't dare sleep because she'd been threatened so many times. It was a challenge to pin Karen down, to get her to appointments, things like a TB test, which is a necessary precursor to getting housing. She'd be riding the buses when the team called her and tremendously vague about where they might be able to pick her up. Our street outreach specialist, Najwa, describes her as sweet but infuriating. So Karen wasn't always homeless. She once had a career as a paralegal, but aspects of her behavior made it difficult for her. However, Karen is now housed in a sober harm reduction facility, and she's doing very well in her new community, attending to the required house meetings and emotional support groups. And in this housing situation, Karen's being held accountable for her own success and is responsible for keeping her room clean, helping to clean the common areas, setting goals for herself, working towards achieving them. So Najwa says she's really hopeful that Karen will be able to settle down now that she's housed and work toward a successful future. So we are thrilled for Karen and for the many others that we've been able and fortunate enough to help. But imagine this. Instead of riding the buses all night to stay safe, instead of not sleeping in order to stay safe, imagine if we'd been able to have a tiny home or a transitional pallet shelter where Karen could come and stay, where she could be safe in her own area, in her own bed, with her own door that locks. So when we come back, I'm going to uh, talk with the founder and CEO of Hope of the Valley, Ken Kraft, because his organization has been successful in creating these pallet shelters, tiny home villages all over Los Angeles, in the city of Los Angeles and around the county. And uh, I just want to learn from him and hear from him about his agency and how he has been successful and perhaps what we might learn uh, from him to bring something like this to our great city of Pasadena. So this is Stories from the Street. I'm Rabbi Joshua Levine Grader, and uh, we'll be right back with Ken Kraft. Stay with us. So I was able to reach Ken uh, via Zoom, which is how we had this conversation. So it is a pleasure, Ken, to welcome you uh, to our show. Uh, it's good to be here. Thank you. So uh, just maybe tell me a little bit about yourself and uh, and, and your organization. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I'm the uh, founder and CEO at Hope of the Valley Rescue Mission, and we are a health and human service provider. We started, well, it was... Uh, 12 years ago, and uh, we were able to start very humbly. There was a little church in Sun Valley that let us use their facility. They had a kitchen, so um, and they also gave me this little office that was in the upper choir loft, and then the choir loft was our food pantry, and it, it was crazy. Um, but nevertheless, you got to start somewhere. 
And so we started serving, I remember our very first meal was on a Thursday night. And I think we had 22 people that showed up. And uh, it was uh, just that first opportunity to really help people with some basic needs. Uh, since that time, you know, we've continued to grow and to expand. Now we do, I think, about 1,500 meals a day. Wow. Uh, and we, you know, we finished last year, 2020, with nine homeless shelters, 507 beds, and we'll finish this year with 16 homeless shelters, 1,532 beds. And of those shelters, we've got youth shelter, family shelters, congregant shelters. We have um, tiny home facilities and really just, you know, safe parking, um, emergency shelters. We've got um, access centers. We've got, you know, um, storage facilities. So really trying to just a whole uh, um, menu of, of services, you know, to to help people in need. Wow. And, and quite a journey. So amazing. I, I, I've written about Hope of the Valley. I visited uh, uh, when you were opening the one in the park in North Hollywood. Um, Alexander Park. Just, just to go back, how did you do the first one? I mean, how did you, what was the vision there and, and what was the process to, to get that? And you do everything just in L.A.? Um, right. Yes, it is L.A., but we've also kind of branched out to the high desert. So we have uh, two access centers there and we are looking at, you know, expanding in that area uh, and into the San Gabriel Valley as well. I mean, one of the things we've always tried to do is to be opportunistic and really try to seize the moment when opportunity presents itself. Um, I know what it's like to struggle in this field because policy has not always been our friend and historically, policy has been that organizations like Hope of the Valley, you could only open up a homeless shelter in specific zoning that, at least here in Los Angeles, was C2 and CM, which is commercial or commercial manufacturing. And that's very limiting. And now you could try to get it into other zoning, but you'd have to have a conditional use permit, which meant you had to have a public hearing. Everybody is invited to come out and yell and scream at you and say, not in my backyard. Yep. Uh, the limitation was you could only have 30 beds or less. Okay. Unless again, you have a conditional use permit. And so something incredible happened in 2018. In 2018, Mayor Eric Garcetti declared a shelter emergency in Los Angeles way overdue. We've needed it for a long time. Mm -hmm. But that shelter emergency changed the landscape on how we could do homeless services and how we could scale, how we could create solutions that would be far-reaching. Number one, not now we're not just limited to commercial buildings. We could actually move into M1, M2 manufacturing. There's mm. a lot of manufacturing buildings out there. That's how we're able to purchase skate land which is going to be called the Trebek Center. The second thing is... That's a that, roller uh, rink that you purchased? Yeah, yeah, a roller rink is being repurposed into a 107-bedroom uh, shelter. Amazing. Uh, and, and then you've got that, that limit of 30 beds. That's been lifted, okay, with this shelter declaration. And the third key element to the shelter declaration was that the city of Los Angeles could open up a shelter in any zoning. As long as, number one, either they owned it, the land, or number two, they were leasing it. So some city council members, when they saw how this was unfolding, they were very aggressive. 
And they said, I want an inventory of any and all land in my council district that is not being utilized to its full potential. Mm -hmm. And I think of Councilman Paul Krikorian in, in particular, because it was in his council district that the very first tiny home community was open. Where? In Wreck and Park land. Because it was a piece of dirt that was just sitting there. There was encampments on it. Alexandria Park, the exact same thing, right? right? And so it was this, this partnership, this public-private partnership that really accelerated the ability to open up interim housing. And for those that may be listening that are just unfamiliar with that term, interim housing, it's not permanent. It is temporary. Now, do I believe that permanent housing, supportive housing, affordable housing is the answer? A hundred times yes, Right. but the streets can't be the waiting room for permanent housing. Any more than if I had hypothermia, you would say, Ken, wait in the snow until the doctor can see you. You wouldn't do that. It's cruel and it's inhumane. And so what really put the accelerant in this process was the city. And the city said, I'm going to get behind this. We've got land and we're going to help resource it. And so for us, you know, we said, hey, we are believers in interim housing. We know how to run interim housing. And so whereas we have certain congregant sites, which means everybody's under one roof altogether, when the tiny homes came out, we recognized that that was going to meet a very important need for some many homeless individuals that need a bit more privacy. Correct. And so that's how it all came about. Councilman Krikorian said, hey, Hope of the Valley, would you guys be willing to do this? Because I'd already been working on a prototype of a tiny home with the University of Southern California. Uh, but about that time, someone said to me, hey, Ken, have you heard of these tiny homes from Pallet Shelter out of Seattle? Correct. And I thought, but I looked them up and I realized there's a certain time when you got it, like in a good poker game, you got to know how to fold your hand and it was time to fold our hand at USC because they had a better product. It was cheaper. It was lightweight. It could easily be deployed, didn't require fire sprinklers. And so we were able to get the very first tiny home site up. It was 39 units on Chandler Boulevard. So that's, this is amazing. Um, so I guess I'd want to ask you, you know, what, what would be your approach, um, in, in a place where it's, 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 been little to zero interest, or I wouldn't say people are maybe interested, but as I've written, when it comes uh, to put the rubber to the road, as they say, it, it goes nowhere. And so yeah. what, what, what advice would you have to, to how do we move past this? Because clearly your program and your villages are really successful. I, I saw them firsthand and clearly it's touched uh, the hearts and the the pockets uh, of the city and the, and the council. Um, and, you know, I assume they wouldn't be continuing to offer you contracts if it wasn't working. So, uh, you know, how do we go about convincing folks that, that this works? Yeah, that's a great question. And I, I think um, just to kind of backfill it, you know, are they really successful? And I would say they are. But you have to understand what is the objective? Uh, and the objective, first and foremost, is we've got to bring people inside. Correct. We can't leave them outside. The longer we leave people outside, homeless on the streets, the worse they become. Mentally, physically, 
emotionally. And so by bringing people inside, and I, I, I say it this way, when people are living on the streets, they're not really living, they're existing, hmm. right? Where am I going to go to the bathroom? What am I going to eat? How do I protect myself? Um, when we can bring people inside and we can give them three meals a day, we can give them hygiene and, and, and clothing and case management, housing navigation, mental health services, substance use treatment, job training, job placement. All of a sudden, the brain can move out of survival mode. And then it can start to think about possibilities. And that's what we see happen every day. When people are coming in, they're a little bit skeptical. What is this? Is this for real? And then they start getting a few good nights sleep and some good meals. And they start to realize, you know what? Maybe I'm not going to die on the streets mm. because there's, there's despair and hopelessness. But when we can bring people in and hope can be ignited, then we start to see the seeds of transformation. And then we start to see the possibilities unfold. And so, uh, you know, there's hardly a day that goes by now that we're not transitioning people out of these tiny homes and into permanent housing. Um, I, and personally, I look forward to the day when we can decommission these tiny homes, send them somewhere in the world, maybe where there's, you know, uh, another crisis um, in, you know, because we will have enough affordable housing. But the, then to answer your question how do we mobilize? How do we motivate? How do we um, move the needle when it comes to getting certain jurisdictions to, to you know, be a part of this? And, and I will say this. I mean, I mean, I've learned my arms are too short to box against City Hall. Mm -hmm. Okay, um, I've tried. And I've lost. Uh, you know, I don't have the resources they have. I don't have the power. I don't have the influence. And so it really is about building relationships and continuing to show the need and show the solution. Because I believe most people in government, they, they want solutions. They, they want to create a solution to solve a problem. And, and especially, you know, we're living in Southern California and, you know, homelessness, it's a humanitarian crisis. And I think most people see it. And usually if there's enough people that are speaking up and speaking out on a subject and have, you know, Politicians, they hear people gripe all the time, right? They, right? they hear people's problems, but they need a real solution and not just, oh, this solution would work. Because then they're going to say, well, where? You know, to come to them with a comprehensive solution. Listen, you know, because they're, you know, they're probably not going to go out of their way, you know, to create the solution. But if you can bring them a solution in a box mm -hmm. uh, that says, okay, here's the tiny homes. Here's a location that would work. Here's the approximate budget on this thing. We need your help. Um, and, you know, and getting business leaders to, to speak up. See, when I speak up to somebody, it's like, oh, who are you? Okay, but when I can get, you know, a John and Lisa Cryer, okay, you know, somebody with more status and more clout or, or you know, Fortune 500 business, you know, speaking out, and we start to kind of layer that approach then that it, it creates greater interest and desire for people on the political scale uh, to get involved in help. Wow. Well, that, this is so helpful. And, you know, I'll have to bring you uh, to Pasadena for sure. This is just the first uh, step because I, I just am very amazed and uh, inspired by your work. I'm inspired by the things that you said uh, uh, today. And 
you know, um, that you should hope of the valley is a model. Uh, I hope more people are, are seeing uh, uh, how it works and how it has worked. And yeah, I, I try to make sure here people understand this is not the permanent solution. That's why it's called transitional interim housing, but that you know, we've been using motels, this motel project, um, you know, to, to do that. Um, but that's, if you weighed the cost of uh, motels, uh, motel rooms, and we're not providing the services that you're providing, three meals a day and uh, the, the intensive case management, uh, we're working on it. But to have this idea where we're bringing people together, and in the motels, there's not the community that I know I saw uh, at, at your village that it was going to build uh, people are not isolated because I know isolation is such a huge you're in safety and you can eat together you can meet people you can you know come out of, of your shell of, of what you said you're just existence and yes. and get back to living so I just want to say thank you uh, thanks for taking this time and thanks for what you're doing and um, you know we'll look forward to, to talking again well, thank you, and I look forward to it. And anything we can do to make it happen, let's make it happen. Great. Great. Thanks, Ken. I'm really grateful uh, to Ken Kraft for taking time to talk with us and hear about his amazing uh, work. And I look forward to uh, bringing him back and learning more about how we might uh, do this work here in Pasadena. So I appreciate you listening and uh, tuning in to Stories from the Street. That's going to do it for this episode. If you liked what you heard, please share it uh, with friends and family. And if you want to learn more about what we do uh, here at Friends Indeed, you can visit us at our website, friendsindeedpas.org. And you can follow us on uh, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. All right, we'll see you next time. I'm Rabbi Joshua Levine Grader. Thanks for being with us. And take care.